You can open up your copy of the Bible if you have one to the book of Hebrews. That's what we've been going through uh, the last few months, and we have still uh, several months ahead of us as well. Um, But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, the start of that chapter today. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. But I wanted to uh, say a special thank you, or not a special, I say this every week, but a thank you to all of you for your generosity as a church family, uh, the gifts that you uh, give uh, week in and week out, month in and month out to help uh, fund the mission of our church. Uh, If you don't know how to do that or you'd like to start doing that, there's multiple ways that you can. Uh, You can give online. If you go to that URL, there's always boxes at the back uh, of this auditorium that you could drop in on a Sunday. You can mail gifts in to the church. But uh, we want to be faithful to continue to use the funds that God has given to us as a church to fund the mission uh, that God has given us as a church to make the gospel known amongst the nations and the generations. So thank you. Uh, And I want to encourage you to keep uh, being faithful in your generosity toward the mission of Christ. I want to start out this morning. I'm going to sound like a kind of crusty old man uh, for a second, even though I'm still in my 30s, just barely. Uh, But uh, it used to be, uh, back in the good old days, uh, that to get ordained as a minister actually meant something uh, that that was actually fairly hard to do, uh, that there was actually uh, a lot that would have to happen in order to be ordained uh, as a minister, as a pastor. You'd have to have, and I'm thankful our church actually does this still, our denomination still does this, but you'd have to have a few things evaluated. You'd have to have your doctrine evaluated, like do you know the truth? Are you able to correct error? Those sorts of things. You'd have to have your life evaluated. What kind of man are you? Uh, Not just publicly, but privately. Uh, How do you treat people? How do you uh, navigate life? And then you'd have to have your giftings evaluated. Are you actually gifted to do this, to function in this way amongst the people of God? And if all those things lined up, you'd be confirmed. You'd be appointed. You'd be ordained and installed into a particular role uh, as a pastor of the church. Nowadays, I kid you not, some of you may know this, you can literally go to getordained.org Don't do this now, but you can go to getordained.org. This is for real. And they, it's, it's run by this quote unquote church called Universal Life Church. Uh, And they brag on there. It's like right at the top. It says, ordination takes five minutes. Ordination takes five minutes. And it says, get started without experience. Like it's some business enterprise or something. Like you can literally go to these websites and that's some of the more serious ones. Like you can go to more, I think there's just a joke. Like these things called like the church of the dude and stuff like that. And you can become a dudist priest, stuff like this. Like just nonsense. Like where you can go online, you can get ordained in a matter of minutes. It's free to you unless you want the certificate. Then you've got to pay 50 bucks or something. Uh, but you can get ordained uh, as easy as possible. It takes nothing anymore. And what happens if somebody goes that route? If somebody goes to getordained.org, they plug their name in, they hit the submit button, they get ordained. Really, they're just appointing themselves to that task, aren't they? And I don't even think they know what the task is, like what the role is. Uh, we've, we've so watered down what it means to be a minister, to be a pastor, to be a priest, like where it just means doing something vaguely religious, uh, that you have some vague responsibility. And because we don't really know what it is or what it requires, 
then we just have kind of made it a free-for-all of who can be that. And you can even deem yourself that. You can say, I want to be ordained, sign me up, now I'm ordained. Uh, but I want you to imagine, I want to push the, the logic on this. Imagine if you were about to get married, okay? Let's say uh, you are about to get married and you had arranged to have a, a pastor officiate. Somehow he gets sick or providentially he's not able to come or something. And you're kind of scrambling the day of. It's getting like an hour before, 30 minutes before, and you're like, what are we going to do? Who's going to? officiate this wedding and all of a sudden you have one of your like weird cousins or something come up to you and say hey I don't know if you know this but like I got ordained with the church of the dude uh, you you would not be thrilled in that moment would you you it's not like you'd be like oh whew, like we have an ordained minister amongst us a dudist priest like you would not be thinking that you would be cringing right you'd be thinking oh and even if you let him perform it, you would be wondering in the back of your mind, and so would everyone else, like, is this legit? Like, is this okay to do? Like, is this guy for real? Like, is this thing going to hold up? Like, if the state challenges it or anything like that, you would be wondering in the back of your mind, is this okay? We might pretend like it's okay. We might, he might pretend like he's ordained, but that check that would be in your heart illustrates something I think all of us know deep down in our hearts is that ordination actually matters. Like affirmation actually matters. That's not just that everybody can do everything and that anybody can be anything or do anything that they want to do. They need to be, know what they're doing. They need to be qualified to do it. And in this instance, where you're talking about a minister, a pastor, a priest, they need to be affirmed into that role, not just self-appointed. Right, And so what we're going to see in today's text is the author of Hebrews making that point very clearly uh, that he's going to be talking about priests and Jesus as our priest. And he's going to make very clear in different ways that he, a priest needs to be appointed. A priest needs to be qualified. He needs to be appointed to this task. And Jesus himself, as our high priest, needed to be qualified and needed to be appointed to his task. And so last week, if you were here with us, we just preached through books of the Bible. If you were here last week with us, uh, Pastor Jake preached from the last three verses of Hebrews chapter 4, uh, from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And I, I want you to put your eyes on that real quick because it's going to connect into our text today. But in that text, the author was encouraging them. If you look at verse 16, the very last one that we looked at last week, he said this to them. This was what have, would have been ringing in their ears. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what he had just written right before what we're about to read. He had said, hey, we need to draw near to God's throne with confidence, right? That's what he was encouraging them to do, calling them to do, to draw near to God with confidence. And I, I point that to you because if, if you have the copy of the ESV, or I think NASB is like this, in our text today, chapter 5, verse 1, the first word is for. And then he's going to launch into a little paragraph uh, with some verses referenced in here where he's going to expand on why he just told them to draw near with confidence. He said, draw near to God with confidence for, and then he's going to explain more fully why we can do that, why we should do that. That's what we're about to read is why we can draw near to God with confidence. It's going to have a lot to do with Jesus being appointed as our high priest. That's what he's going to really emphasize. And so I want to read this for you, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 down through verse 10 and the next Sunday we'll pick it up verse 11 and following so follow along with me Hebrews chapter 5 starting at verse 1 the unknown author uh, continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text and, and my message from it uh, with a simple statement this morning. Is that, and I, I trust you'll see it in this text. It's not just my word, but it would be this. is that Christ's appointment should embolden our approach. Christ's appointment should embolden our approach. If you want a longer version of it, I, I, would, I, I would say this. That Christ's appointment as the high priest of heaven should embolden our approach toward God. The fact that he's been appointed this priest should give us more confidence to approach God the Father. That's what we're going to see in today's text. In this passage, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, it's essentially divided in two halves, I'd say. There's verses 1 through 4 that are probably a paragraph in your copy, and then verses 5 through 10. And the first four verses are going to be, and you probably saw they're about priests in general, like what they do, what needs to be true of them. And then verses 5 through 10 is about Jesus himself as our high priest. It drives down into who Jesus was and shows he's, this, he's a fulfillment of what priests in general were supposed to be. And you can see the hinge between those two, uh, two halves of the text. If you look at the end of verse 4, and at the start of verse 5, these words that are slammed together, end of verse 4, the, so the end of the first section says, just as Aaron was. Do you see that? So that, that's this summary. Aaron was the very first high priest. So he's been explaining what Aaron was like in verses 1 to 4. But the very next words in verse 5, as he transitions, as he says, so also Christ. And so he, that's where he does this pivot, this hinge from priests in general to talk about Jesus more specifically. And so I want to use those as two headings just to, to summarize the text. The first one's going to be just as Aaron was. And then a little bit later, we'll get to so also Christ. And we're going to see appointment is a big deal uh, for both of these sections. So as he starts in verses 1 through 4, he's talking about priests in general. And I want to note a couple things what he's trying to say about priests in general under this heading of just as Aaron was. First, think about the role of the high priest. What, what was he supposed to do? Like what was his actual job uh, according to the scriptures? Aaron was the very first high priest. If you don't know, he was Moses' brother. Okay? He, he was the very first high priest of Israel that was appointed, that was installed by God. And, but what he says, this author says about priests in general who followed down the line from Aaron is that they need to, verse 1, 
act on behalf of men in relation to God. That doesn't just mean men like males, but human beings. That, that this priest, this high priest, operated on behalf of human beings in relation to God. So that, that was the direction, that representing humans, going toward God. And verse 1 also says right, before, right after that, that he does that by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. That, that's his short summary of what a priest was to do, a high priest to do. There's a lot more that they would do, but that's how he condenses it. They act on behalf of human beings toward God, and they bring gifts and offerings, sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. There's going to be much more on this later in Hebrews. I'm not going to belabor this, but if you read at all in the Old Testament about high priests, there were all sorts of offerings that they were bringing toward God and to the presence of God. People would bring grain, they'd bring oil, they'd bring different kinds of animals. There'd be all these prescriptions about different types of offerings to bring to God, but the people wouldn't just do it on their own. They would bring it to a priest who would then take that to God on their behalf. And so that's what he's getting at. This priest would operate on behalf of the people toward God, bringing gifts and sacrifices. So that's what his role was. That's a simplified version of it. But I want you to hear next how he talks about the fitness of the high priest. And I don't mean like his strength or his cardio abilities or something, but like his suitedness to serve, to do this. Like how, what was he supposed to be like? Not just what was he supposed to do, but what was he supposed to be like? What needed to be true of him? You see in verse one that he needed to be chosen from among men. That's a, a shorthand way of saying he needed to be a human being, right? Uh, I th- probably, we would probably assume that. It may n- uh, not even need to, to be said, but he needed to be chosen from among men. So he needed to be a human being like the ones he's representing, right? And he could have gotten into way more detail. There's way more narrow prescription. It's not just that any human could have been a priest, but uh, you did have to be a human. You, but you had more narrowly, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. Um, but he, all he says here is that he needed to be chosen from among men. And so he's emphasizing that this priest needs to be one of us. Like he needs to have solidarity with us. He's not some foreigner or outsider. He is one of us if he's going to represent us before God. And he says in verse 2 that he needs to deal gently. He says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. So that needed to be another trait of this priest is he needed to know weakness He needed to, in his life, know what it was like to be weak, to not be able to just do everything and fix everything and have no problems in his life, but to know the experience of weakness so that he could deal gently with sinners, that he could deal gently with sufferers. That was part of his role, was not just to go before God, but to deal gently with the people that he was representing. And so there was this fitness that needed to be true of him. It just wasn't like anybody could go to a website and, I want to be a high priest like Aaron, sign me up. They needed to have these certain traits about them. But what he emphasizes the most in this section is the appointment of the high priest. Not just of what he does or what his, the fitness to serve, but the appointment of this high priest or these high priests that have come throughout Israel's history. And he says this in a couple ways in this first paragraph. He says it positively, right, in verse 1. He says every high priest, hear this, is appointed to act on behalf of men, right? It's not just he self-appoints, but he is appointed by someone else. He, he is installed into that. He's affirmed into that. So it's stated positively. But in verse four, 
And talking about Aaron as an example, he, he says more generally about priests that no one takes this honor for himself. This honor of serving as priest is not just something you like claim to, like, man, I want to do that. Let me do that. I'm willing to do it. Uh, I'll do it. it. He says that nobody takes this honor for himself. If you go back and read about how Aaron became the high priest, Aaron was not like, oh, Moses, like, pick me. I'm, I'll, I'll do it. Like, I'm willing to do it. You need a priest? Like, I'm your guy. Like, he wasn't doing that. It was God's idea from the start for Aaron to become the high priest. And he's the one who appointed Aaron to this task, not even Moses. And certainly not the people of Israel didn't do, like, an election or something of, okay, who is the best priest-like person that we could install into this? It was God's idea. It was God's plan. He was the one who appointed Aaron to this task of being the high priest and this is vitally important because when someone is appointed to a task when somebody is appointed to a role what does that do it get, it lends credibility right it lent, it gives legitimacy to this person right it gives validity to who they are and what they are doing on behalf of the people so it gives that person confidence but it also gives the people they're representing confidence right they don't have to wonder like you would be wondering with your dudist priest cousin like is this guy legitimate but if somebody's been actually legitimately appointed to a task it gives you confidence in what they're doing for you Right? Like what they're doing on your behalf. That, that appointment gives credibility, legitimacy, validity to this person who's serving in this role as priest. Before we turn to how Jesus is this high priest, I just want to say a, a word of application from this idea from verse 4, how no one takes this honor for himself. I think we would be wise in today's uh, culture as Americans or maybe just as human beings in general to take note of this, that in the kingdom of God, we should not be clamoring for positions. Like we should not be thinking, well, I want to do that. Like I'm gonna lay claim to that and I, I'm gonna do that. I am going to assert myself. I'm going to place myself in this position. I don't care what anybody says. Like we, we need to have humility to not appoint ourselves to any task, but to submit to the, the wisdom of, of brothers and sisters and to submit especially to the wisdom of God himself, that he is the one who appoints office holders. He's the one who appoints servants in the life of the church, not us. And this is not just whoever wrote Hebrews' idea. This is not uh, his thinking. This comes from Jesus himself. You read in the Gospel of Luke, for example, read Luke chapter 14. Jesus liked to tell stories, liked to tell parables, and he told this one parable because because in real life, Jesus was at this dinner with a bunch of Pharisees who he saw as he was scanning the room were taking seats of honor. They were trying to position themselves in places to get respect or to be seen or to, to get notoriety. And Jesus is watching this happen. And then he told this story to them. It's in Luke 14, uh, verses 7 through 11. He told this story about a wedding. And he was saying, he, this is what he said. Uh, he said, when you're invited, when you're invited to this wedding, Go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Then hear this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was trying to correct this attitude of, I'm just gonna get this position, I'm gonna be seen, I'm gonna get this responsibility. And Jesus was saying, that is not how my kingdom works. 
Like you serve in the lowest places, and then if others recognize you, and if God affirms you, you'll be entrusted with a different responsibility. You'll be entrusted with a greater responsibility. That's true of priests, it's true of pastors, it's true of any role in the life of the church, that we serve humbly, and then we may receive greater opportunity as we are faithful in that task. But no one should be just seeking honor for himself in isolation, or herself in isolation. We should be humble as we seek roles of service in the life of the church. And so he's made these points about priests in general, about high priests specifically, but there's that hinge as we come to verse 5 where he starts talking about Jesus himself, how he's the fulfillment of what priests were and what they were supposed to do, but he's an even greater fulfillment of it. He's not just like Aaron, he's like him, but there's a greater level, a different, uh, a different dimension that Jesus' priesthood is going to take. So I want to show you a couple of things from verses 5 through 10 in the second half under the heading of So Also Christ. Okay. Uh, first, as we think of that similar category, the role of his priesthood. He, he, the author is talking about Jesus clearly as our high priest, and he's going to increasingly use that language in Hebrews. And Jesus' priesthood in some ways is similar to Aaron's priesthood. In some ways it is similar to all these priests of the Jewish people who would have come before him. Uh, in some ways it's similar, right? He, in the very like simplest sense of the word, and of the phrase of verse 1, Jesus was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, right? If that's what a priest is, and a, a priest was to offer sacrifice, and he was to operate on behalf of human beings before God, we could say, yep, Jesus did that. Like, Jesus was certainly sent to do that, just like Aaron was. Uh, so he, he is, his priesthood is similar, but you get hints in this text that they're going to become way more explicit as the book goes on, that Jesus' priesthood is greater than Aaron's. It's similar, but it's greater. And you can see a couple hints even in this text today because you may not know this, but Jesus was actually not a descendant of Aaron, right? Like all the priests of Israel came from the line of Aaron. All his, every high priest would have been a descendant of Aaron. Jesus wasn't, right? Jesus was uh, from a different tribe. He was not from the line of Aaron, but this author still talks about him as a priest. But note, in this text, it appears twice. He talks about Jesus being a priest of a different order, like, and we're not familiar with orders of priests very much as Protestants, and I think that's fine. Uh, but orders of priests would have been like a type of priest or a category of priests. And what he says twice in this text, in verse 6 and then in verse 10, is that Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron, but he's a priest in the order of this mysterious man named Melchizedek. I'm just going to have to put a pin in that for a couple weeks, but just rest assured when we get to chapter 7, there's going to be a thorough treatment of who in the world is Melchizedek and what kind of priest was he? What does that mean that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek? But you get a couple hints beyond just that name in this text that Jesus' priesthood was going to be different and better. Uh, you see in verse 9, it says that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Aaron did not do that. No descendant of Aaron could do that, uh, to offer eternal salvation to God's people. That was something a different type of priest would need to do. They maybe got temporary allowance into the presence of God, right? They maybe gave some sort of temporary relief from God's judgment so that God would stay near to them there in the camp or in the land, but they could not, these priests of Aaron, could not offer eternal salvation 
But Jesus as our high priest can and does. He offers eternal salvation. But note, this is probably the most clear difference in this text, is that he says that Jesus is, look at verse six, Jesus is a priest forever. Right? A priest forever. I don't know what the longest tenure of a high priest of Israel was. It was probably pretty long, I guess, maybe several decades of service. And then he died, right? Whoever that priest was. Jesus becomes a priest forever. Like his priesthood, his intercession would have no end to it. It would have no end point to it. It would last forever, Right? He was a, no more cycles of priests once this priest had come. So his role as priest was different. But the question then is, was he fit for that task? Was he fit to actually offer eternal salvation? Was he fit to be this priest forever? And the, the answer very clearly from this author is yes, he was fit for this task. He was suited for this task to serve as this unique, greater priest a couple ways you see this is he really did become one of us, right? If that was a requirement to act on behalf of humans before God, guess what? You have to be a human. And at one point, God the Son was not a human, right? He had to become a human. That's what Christmas is all about, him becoming a human, joining our ranks, flesh and blood, human being. He really did become one of us. Note in verse 7 this statement, in the days of his flesh, Jesus did this. He offered up prayers and supplications, right? He became fully, truly one of us. He faced death, right? He was appealing to the one who could save him from death. He didn't become human in some way that's foreign to us where he would never die. He became fully human, became a mortal with a mortal body. He became one of us. He suffered, verse 8 says, right? And because of that, as our priest, he's able to deal gently with us. Right? He is able, in a way that the priests of Aaron's order never could, Jesus can actually deal gently with us. Not because he's a fellow sinner, but because he has suffered in ways we cannot even comprehend. Like he, he has been through experiences in life that we could not fathom. Like he has plumbed the depths of what agony can be like and is like as a human being, and he can deal gently with us when we suffer. And he has borne our sins upon the cross so that when we sin and when we come to him in repentance, he doesn't crush us. He doesn't condemn us. He deals gently with us and says, brother or sister, thank you for returning to me. Like he can deal gently with us as this high priest. He has a capacity to sympathize with us. So he, he covers the qualifications for the priesthood of Aaron, right? But for this priesthood that Jesus needed, there was even higher qualifications that were needed, right? If he was going to be this kind of priest. Because we needed a priest who could do more than just sympathize with us, didn't we? We have those in abundance. Like, we sympathize with each other, right? We needed a priest who could save us. Like, not just who could sympathize with us and feel bad with us and cry with us. Those are valuable, needed things. But we needed a priest who could actually save us, right? We needed a priest who was perfect. Like, who couldn't just offer a sacrifice and go into the temple, go into the tabernacle for a, a 30 minutes or something and offer up a sacrifice and be near to God and then have to come back out. We needed a priest who was perfect, who could go into the presence of God and stay there, right? And then bring us into the presence of God. That's the kind of priest we needed, a perfect priest. And I have good news for you. That is the type of priest Jesus became. 
That is the exact type of priest that he became. He says in verse 8 that though he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right? That doesn't mean Jesus had to learn obedience like from disobedience. Like he used to be disobedient and he had to learn how to shape up and do the right thing and stop doing the wrong thing. When it says that he learned obedience, it means that he had to prove himself in a sense. He had, his, his obedience to God, his perfection, couldn't just be an idea. It couldn't just be an abstraction or a possibility. He had to actually do it. Like he had to actually obey God, actually live a life of obedience and perfection. And that's precisely what Jesus did. It was learned more, his obedience was learned more like a trade, not as a correction, right? Like he, had, he learned to obey God the Father perfectly and fully, even in the midst of his suffering. And it would benefit each of our souls, I think, to take some time to actually, we can't do it now, but take some time soon to contemplate all the ways that Christ suffered and all of what he must have learned through that suffering. All the while being faithful to God, being obedient to God. Think of how he grew to see his father as one who is to be obeyed in real time, not just conceptually, not just in an abstraction, but in my real life situation where I'm, I'm betrayed by my friend where my father passes away, where I have nothing to eat, where he learned obedience. He, he trusted his father through the depths of human suffering. And the, the author says then that in verse nine, he was made perfect. He was made perfect. That doesn't mean that Jesus had somehow had all these blemishes and flaws and sins. When it says that he was made perfect as our high priest, it's this idea of him, the fulfillment of what God sent him to be. Right? Like that, that he actually became what the Lord intended him to be. He, was, he, he became that thing. He was perfected in that sense, this completion idea. And that completion came through what he suffered, but especially what he suffered at the cross. That was the pinnacle of his obedience. That was the pinnacle of his temptation, of his suffering and his sorrow and his trial was at his cross where he bore our sins. And verse seven talks about how Jesus throughout his life, but especially as he came to the end, would offer up prayers with loud cries and tears to God the Father. What does he say? To him who was able to save him from death. Jesus knew that he was coming to the cross. He knew he was going to bear the wrath of God the Father for the sins of us, for your and my sins. He knew that was coming. And what Jesus was praying as he came to that high point of suffering wasn't so much to not have to die. He, he prayed, if, the, if this cup can pass, let it pass. But he knew, I think, in the, the depths of his heart and soul, he must suffer. He had set his face to go to the cross. He knew it had to come. He knew he had to die. And it's more that he was praying not to be spared from death, but to be saved through death. That, that he would die as our sacrifice, as our substitute. But even as he was laid in the grave, not spared from it, but laid in the grave, he knew that and had confidence that God the Father would raise him up that his death would be temporary. It would have a three-day shelf life that would end and God the Father would raise him from the dead never to die again. That's what Jesus was praying for. And that is what was heard. That's what God the Father did, was after Christ suffered bearing our sin and was laid in the tomb, God the Father raised him back up from the dead. He answered his prayer. And that is how he has become a priest forever. 
right? He is now able to be our priest with no end. There is no day where Jesus will stop being your priest. There is nothing that we need to fear in that regard because Jesus has been raised to always and forever intercede for his people. Not just for a year, not just for a decade, but for eternity. He has been perfected as this priest who can actually go and has gone into the presence of God the Father and who can bring us with him. Right? He has offered a sacrifice, and it wasn't of a bull or a goat or grain. It was of his very life, and God has approved of that sacrifice, and he's raised up this priest to never die again, and we now, going back to chapter 4, can draw near with confidence right, to the throne of grace. And that's what I want to end on is the appointment of Jesus to this priesthood. This author belabors this in this text. He makes a point of it to show that Jesus has been appointed to this office. Jesus has been appointed to the office of high priest. In verses five and six, he does this, right? He quotes two verses from the Psalms. He quotes in verse five, he quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where God's is, God the Father is pictured speaking to God the Son, saying, you're my son, today I've begotten you. But then he gets even more explicit about priestly language when he gives this second quote in verse 6, and that's from Psalm 110, verse 4, and where he, uh, God the Father is pictured as saying to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is glorious. Look, look then down, he says it one more time in a different way, down in verse 10 at the very end of today's text, he says that Jesus has been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? So he says it in a couple different ways. God the Father has appointed Jesus to this task. Jesus didn't just uh, want to do it, just say, hey, I'm willing to do it, Make, let it be me, let it be me, let it be me, and self-appoint himself. God the Father has appointed him as this priest that we can come to him through. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I wish I had much more time to elaborate on this. I want you to think about who is making that appointment. Who, is, who has installed Jesus into that office? It wasn't Peter and John, it wasn't a vote of the early church, it wasn't Mary, it wasn't any of the people who came before him. The one who appointed Jesus to the office of the high priest of heaven is God himself. He has appointed him. He has approved of him to serve in that role, right? There are, I'll be honest, there are some dads whose appointment of their son to a certain role means nothing to me, right? Like when you're playing soccer as a kid and the coach's kid is terrible, but he decides, you know what? I kind of like this kid. He's going to be the captain. He's going to be our forward, front, and center to score. That's annoying, right? Like fathers can be fallible, right, in appointing their children to certain things. God the Father is not. Like when he appoints someone to do something, he is right, right? And what is he appointing Jesus to do? He is appointing Jesus to come to himself, right? He's saying, look, you all need to know how to come to me. I'm telling you the person through whom you can come to me, right? And it's Jesus, he is the one person, God the Father would tell you, he is the one person through whom you can come to me. And his judgment is correct. He's the one whose approval you need, whose, whose favor you want, right? And he's telling you the person through whom you can have it. God the Father's judgments are always correct. 
Like he cannot be fooled. He cannot be sweet-talked, right? He cannot be hoodwinked. He cannot be schmoozed. When he appoints someone to something, he is right in doing so. And he has appointed Jesus to be the high priest of heaven, to represent human beings before himself. And this is good news for us to contemplate in all sorts of situations in life, that we have a high priest in heaven appointed by God himself through whom we can draw near to him. Think about, I'll just briefly mention these, when you are suffering, you don't have to suffer away from the presence of God. You don't have to suffer in isolation, wondering if God the Father actually cares for you, if he's attentive to you, if he is near to you. When you are suffering, you don't have to stay away from God because Jesus, the sympathetic high priest, is at God the Father's right hand right now and says, come to me, draw near to me, and draw near to me with confidence. Even though your situation would scream to you otherwise that God is not for you, that God is actually against you, he is reminding us by standing there at God's right hand, no, the Father is for you. Come to me even in your suffering, right? Think about not just when you're suffering, but when you are dealing with shame, when you are dealing with the guilt over your sin, and you are tempted to think, man, God would never approve of me. God would never accept me. I cannot step foot near him. He would not want anything to do with me. He will not hear me right now. That is a a lie from Satan. Like, we don't come to God the Father on our own merit, We don't wait until we are clean, until we are righteous to come to him. We can come to him in the midst of our sin. We can come to him on the back, on the heels of our sin because we have an advocate, Jesus, with God the Father who has died for that very sin, right? I don't need to make atonement. I don't need to be my own priest. You don't need to be your own priest. You cannot be your own priest because you have no sacrifice to bring. But Christ has already brought sufficient sacrifice for you. And when you feel shame, he says, draw near to me. There is more forgiveness yet for you. There is more grace yet for you. And when we have doubt, this is the last thing I'll mention. When we have doubt about, is this all real? Like, can I actually come near to God? Can I actually be received back by God? Or was this stuff about Jesus being raised and him being our high priest, was this just some sort of like fantasy or or concoction of some ancient people that they wished this stuff would be true? So they made up this story, these types of things. When we have doubts that come into our mind about the legitimacy of this, we can look to the appointment and the ordination of God the Father as assurance, right? Not just what my mom has told me, or what my dad has told me, or even what Paul and Peter have told me, although I I better listen to what they have said. But God the Father has told us what he thinks of his son. God the Father has told us his appointment of the one high priest of heaven. If you were to go in my office back over here, I, I have an ordination certificate in my office. Right? That, that is from the day that our church ordained me as one of our pastors here. And that is a sweet possession of mine that I can look at on days if I needed to or would desire to where I would have discouragements or doubts about my legitimacy to serve as a pastor. I can look at those ordination papers and know, man, the Lord has called me to this. The church has confirmed this to me. There's something outside of myself that I can look to to know, man, I have been ordained into this office. It's a humbling one, but I've been ordained to it. I, I was thinking about this, and this is how I'll end. We have ordination papers of Jesus to look at 
right? And it's not in some closed off in some heavenly office somewhere where, where we have to wait someday till we get to heaven and say, hey, can you like show me your ordination certificate, Jesus? We have an ordination certificate of Jesus in Psalm 110, verse four. And here in Hebrews chapter five, verse six, where in, on paper, in ink, God has said to us and continues to say to us, I have appointed Jesus to this task. I have appointed him. You need a priest and it is him. Like he has come, he has died for you, he has been raised for you and you can draw near to me through him and through him alone. And so when we have doubts, when we have sufferings, when we have shame, we can turn to the ordination papers of Jesus right here and know that we have a high priest in heaven and his name is Jesus. And because he's been appointed, we can be emboldened to approach him with confidence, amen?